Biographical Bites from Bala, Laurel Hill West Stories, number 25, from mid-October, 2023. Free Science for All, William Wagner. Welcome to the 25th episode of Biographical Bites from Bala, Laurel Hill West Stories. It's a historic and active cemetery in Bala Kinwood, Pennsylvania. I am Joe Lex, retired professor of emergency medicine from Temple University, volunteer tour guide and volunteer podcaster. Laurel Hill West opened in 1869 across the river from its sister cemetery, Laurel Hill East in Philadelphia. It's more than twice as big as Laurel Hill East. It has a totally different feel and a strikingly different population. But like Laurel Hill East, it is open 365 days a year, now from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. We're about to cut back to 5 p.m. sometime in the next few weeks. There is plenty of parking at the business office just off Belmont Avenue or at the conservatory and the bell tower. If you come in from Belmont, go past the gate and follow the road with the white line in the middle. Another possibility, just come in while you're walking the Kenwood Trail. Your best bet for public transportation, take the R6 to Maniunk or a bus to the Wissahickon Transportation Center on Ridge Avenue. Cross the Schuylkill River, you will be leaving Philadelphia. You'll be going into Montgomery County. There is a pedestrian bridge there, the Pencoid Pedestrian Bridge you can cross on. Then walk up Riders Ferry Road. There's an entrance across from the Pet Cemetery. This 25th episode of Biographical Bites from Bala is for mid-October 2023. William Wagner was a voracious collector who loved to share what he had collected and what he had learned. He built a museum with a lecture hall and he welcomed anyone who wished to learn. The Wagner Free Institute of Science still stands in North Philadelphia, and it still welcomes all who want to learn to its free museum and free lectures. This episode celebrates Wagner and his institute, along with the idea of free education for whomever wants it. I am going to ask that you indulge me for the first few minutes of this podcast, but I really feel like I need to explain to you why free education is so important to me. Uh, 
If you don't want to hear my personal experience, skip ahead to about the 10-minute mark. I come from a blue-collar family. Farmers, railroad workers, car salesmen. Every generation of men served in the military, going all the way back to Sherman's March to the Sea. Neither of my parents had a college degree, but they both took night classes when they could. Tuition for my higher education was my responsibility. And a summer full-time job plus various part-time jobs made my education cheap and easy. When I graduated from high school in 1965, the average tuition for a private college was $2,930 a year. That's equivalent to about $18,000 today. That was far too rich for my blood. A public college, I went to the University of Illinois Chicago Circle campus during its inaugural days after it moved from Navy Pier, was $1,410 per year. Unfortunately, the opportunity for cheap education didn't take. I dropped out. I was drafted in October of 1966. When I got my honorable discharge in 1970, I went back to college for a second time, and this time the GI Bill helped pay my way. Once again, I lasted for one semester. Ditto for the third try, two years later. Third time I was a college dropout. However, a series of really bad jobs made me realize that I needed more education if I were to have any kind of comfortable life. I finally started to get my post-Vietnam bearings in 1976 or so, and I attended nursing school at a community college in Champaign, Illinois. I had been a medic in the Army uh, in Vietnam. The state of Illinois gave me $100 in monthly spending money, in addition to what was left of the GI Bill to pay my tuition. So I became a registered nurse, and I moved to Dallas in 1979 to work in an emergency department of a large metropolitan hospital. I had a mentor who pushed me. He insisted I had to go to medical school. So back to another community college I went, couple of hundred bucks per semester, and I got all my pre-med courses in two years of community college courses. I was able to work a 40-hour week by being scheduled for 3 to 11 Thursday and Friday at 11 to 11 Saturday and Sunday. That left me Monday through Wednesday for school time, lab time, and study time. I did that for two years. So with my associate degree in nursing, no bachelor's degree, and my two years of community college pre-med work, I did well enough on the MCAT so that I was accepted into the University of Texas Health Science Center system at San Antonio. At the time, Texas was experiencing an oil glut. It was pouring money into public education. My medical school tuition, no, I am not making this up, was $300 per year. I borrowed $5,000 a year, and I came out of medical school with $20,000 in debt. I moved to Philadelphia in 1986 to do an emergency medicine residency at Thomas Jefferson, and I started moonlighting at Germantown Hospital in my second year. So by the time I completed residency, I had zero school debt. 
I took a job as a community ER doc, and I taught every chance that I could. Local residency programs, hospital grand rounds, fire stations to teach EMTs and paramedics, rotary clubs, retirement homes. You asked me to talk, and I would be there. I would give a talk. I taught advanced cardiac life support, advanced trauma life support. Eventually, I was invited to speak at regional meetings and then national meetings, and then even a couple of international meetings. And after 14 years as a community ER doc, I decided that I was ready to teach at an academic center. When I started at Temple University in 2003, I was shocked to find out how much debt people were now accruing to become physicians. The amounts kept climbing every year. Many of my residents were $200,000, $400,000 in debt from their college and med school expenses. I watched as even my old cheap medical school in San Antonio raised its tuition till it got to more than $18,000 per year. Now that's still a bargain for medical school. Thomas Jefferson's tuition is currently more than $61,000 a year. That's nearly a quarter of a million dollars to attend medical school. At Temple, I oversaw didactic education for the residents. I started to record the talks and put them online for free, no strings attached. And then I did the same for talks from regional meetings where I spoke, and then international meetings. Over a period of about 10 years, I managed to post more than 2,000 talks on all aspects of emergency medicine. They were available to anyone with internet access. And some of those talks were downloaded more than a thousand times. Occasionally, at an international meeting, someone would look at my name tag and then gush what a difference those talks had made. In a place like Poland or Brazil or Myanmar, which had no formal specialty of emergency medicine, these talks gave people a perspective they could not get from their own mentors who had not trained in emergency medicine. I felt like I was paying back the fates which had made my way so smooth. This simple gesture, record talks, put them online for people. This was impossible before the internet and easy MP3 coding. But this simple gesture has changed hundreds of lives. It served as a model for other folks who wanted to teach. The term FOAM-ED, Free Open Access Medical Education, came to be at an international emergency medicine meeting in Dublin in 2012. Let's just say that Guinness beer was involved. Foam-ED exploded. Many medical experts found that they loved to teach just for the satisfaction of watching people learn. Now, by the time that I retired as a professor of emergency medicine in 2016, I had been handed the moniker Godfather of Foam ED. And by the way, I still don't have a bachelor's degree in anything. So how long has this idea of free education been around? Several years ago, I gave a talk about the history of free education at a meeting in Australia. For my theme, I went back to the beginning of medicine, the Hippocratic Oath. There, in the second paragraph, was the philosophy that I emulated. To hold my teacher in this art equal to my own parents, to make him partner in my livelihood, 
when he is in need of money to share mine with him, to consider his family as my own brothers, and to teach them this art if they want to learn it without fee or indenture. End quote. Hippocrates said we should teach for free. I still have a leaf from the plane tree of Hippocrates. I picked it up while I was at a meeting in Kos, Greece. Legend says it was under this tree that Hippocrates taught some of the first medical students. This free education philosophy has lived on after my retirement. In fact, it's one of the reasons I do this podcast, so I can spread free information. Only now it's about historical people and events in and around Philadelphia. Now, I think the odds are pretty good that if you're from Philadelphia, you've at least heard of the Wagner Free Institute. You may have even visited it once or twice during grade school or high school. If you're not from Philly, you've probably never heard of it, and yet it's occupied a full city block in North Philadelphia since it opened in 1865. That's nearly 160 years ago. And except maybe for the gas light fixtures being replaced by electric lights, it really hasn't changed very much. The building is at the southwest corner of 17th and Montgomery. Cecil B. Moore Avenue is just a block away. The Temple Campus is about a five-minute walk. At the front gate, there's a wooden and glass display box with a poster announcing that this is the Wagner Free Institute of Science. Go up the steps and ring yourself in. There is a suggested donation, but nobody's going to hassle you if you can't pay. The museum collection is up a flight of worn wooden stairs, and there you will see aisle after aisle of William Wagner's personal collection of flora and fauna. There are corals, seashells, rocks, fossils, crustaceans, insects, amphibians, birds, and mammals, both large and small. In one of the tall cabinets is an ivory-billed woodpecker. The last sighting of this rare creature in the United States was in Louisiana in 1944. There's a menacing-looking bald eagle, the large skeleton of a horse, plus badgers, alligators, and squirrels peer down at you from the top of the display cabinets. And there's a, there's a skull of a saber-toothed cat. Tucked in the back corner of the second floor are the partial remains of a dinosaur. Small specimens are displayed in cherry wood cases, which were constructed in the 1880s. Many of these display cases retain the original handwritten curator's labels with fading, tiny, precise writing telling you what you are looking at. Don't expect a catalog or an electronic button to push to call up further information. Those things don't exist. This Victorian wonderland is a wormhole into a world that existed 150 years ago. A local treasure for time travel. Museums have been around for millennia. The Museum of Alexandria was founded in 280 BCE by Macedonian general and scholar Ptolemy I Soter for, quote, learned discourse in the presence of its objects, end quote. It spanned both art and science. These early museums were intended for scholars, some of whom were in residence. During the Age of Exploration, museums spread across Europe to document the wonders of the New World. 
Some museums went by other names. For instance, a studio or a cabinet. Cabinets of curiosity emerged in 16th century Germany. But they were usually the playthings of princes, popes, and plutocrats. It wasn't until the Age of Enlightenment that museums became more public. By the Industrial Revolution, museums started to embrace educational programs to improve the working class. The Charleston Museum in South Carolina, founded in 1773, was the first public museum in this country three years before we became a country. I told you on a prior podcast about Charles Wilson Peale's marvelous collection on the second floor of Independence Hall. Its main attraction was the Mastodon skeleton. After the Civil War, many people developed the attitude that objects and not books were sources of knowledge, and that museums, not universities, were where knowledge was produced. There was a philosophy that these objects, systematically arranged, would help make perfect sense of the world. Museums became central in the intellectual life of the age. And unlike many European museums, the ones in the United States were open to anyone who wished to visit. How many museums are there in Philadelphia? About a hundred, as near as I can figure. There's everything from the priceless collection of Impressionist art at the Barnes Foundation to Temple University School of Podiatric Medicine's Shoe Museum. The Academy of Natural Sciences was established more than 50 years before the Wagner. Also before it were the Franklin Institute, the Library Company, the American Philosophical Society. Each of them had a different viewpoint. Each catered to the needs and desires of upper-class Philadelphia. Those of us who volunteer at Laurel Hill consider the cemeteries to be outdoor people museums. In America today, There are more than 17,500 museums. They receive 850 million visitors per year. That's more attendees than all major sporting events and theme parks combined. William Wagner saw a museum like his as the perfect way to teach people about science at a college level and to do it for free. Wagner was born in 1796, the son of a successful Philadelphia cotton merchant who lived at 25 South 2nd Street. That is now the location of the Benjamin Franklin Beer Distributorship. I walked walked past it yesterday. His family also had a summer home on the Wissahickon Creek, just outside of the city at that time, where Wagner started his collection of rocks and minerals. He was admitted into James Abercrombie's Select Academy and graduated in 1808 when he was 12 years old. After he graduated from the University of Pennsylvania at 18 years old, he wanted a career in science, and he applied to study surgery with Dr. Philip Singh Physic, the father of American surgery. But his father pushed him into taking an apprenticeship with French-born merchant Stephen Girard, the wealthiest American of the early 19th century, probably also its greatest philanthropist. So between 1818 and 1840, Wagner spent 22 years in business, and he amassed his own great fortune. During his travels around the world, he gathered floral and faunal specimens that he shipped back to Philadelphia. 
he became a member of all the local scientific societies, and he continued his boyhood hobby of collecting fossils, shells, and other geologic specimens. As various museums opened in Philadelphia, Wagner visited them all. But despite his considerable knowledge as an autodidact, he found that he was increasingly isolated from the growing scientific community, which grew more professional and showed little to no interest in educating the common man. When Stephen Gerard died in 1831, he left massive fortunes to civic organizations in both New Orleans and Philadelphia. Wagner took this as a sign of what he should do with his growing collection and fortune. He married Louisa Binney, 18 years his junior, and a woman with her own robust financial resources. When he retired at age 44 in 1840, William and Louisa took off on a two-year tour of Europe armed with letters of reference from American scientists and trunks of his own specimens for bartering. While in Europe, Wagner visited as many museums as he could. Sometimes they were so exclusive that even his letters of introduction were not enough for him to gain entrance. His greatest praise was from museums which offered admission to anyone and conducted classes with free tuition. When the Wagners returned home, they moved to Elm Grove, a large suburban estate north of Philadelphia. Remember, this was before the consolidation of 1854, when the border of the city was Arch Street. From 1852 to 1854, the Wagner offered free scientific lectures in his home, and he used his own collection as specimens for demonstration. Despite his home school's location a few miles from the population center of Center City, these talks attracted large crowds, more than could cram into his house. The city gave him use of Municipal Hall on Spring Garden Street. On 9 March 1855, William's dream to deliver free education came true as he incorporated the Wagner Free Institute of Science for the, quote, practical, busy, laboring people of Philadelphia, end quote. This is four years before the Cooper Union for the Advancement of Science and Art opened in New York City. The Free Institute offered formal courses by local scientists and educators, geology, anatomy, physiology, biology, botany, chemistry, civil engineering, and others. The courses ran from October to July. They were split into two equal sessions, and lectures were usually filled to overflowing. They were offered, quote, without money and without price to the multitudes that assembled to avail themselves of their enlightening influences, end quote. That is an echo of the philosophy of Hippocrates. In addition to the free lectures, students could work toward a college degree. To earn a degree, candidates were required to have, quote, a good English education, a pure moral character, be at least 17 years old, and must study for two years, including four public lectures each day. Now, these lectures were, quote, divested of all needless technicalities and all harsh, unusual terms in vigorous, transparent, and flexible English, end quote, and several hundred people were attracted these lectures. 
Well, the city reclaimed Spring Garden Hall for its own use in 1859. So Wagner planned a new building for the Institute just south of his home, although its completion was somewhat stalled by the Civil War. To design his new building, Wagner chose John MacArthur, an institutional architect who made churches, banks, hospitals, and hotels. Wagner had no desire for a massive Gothic cathedral of science, so his museum was very plain and very practical. The original plan called for two observation towers, one each for meteorology and astronomy, but they were not built. On 11 May 1865, a month after Appomattox and 10 years after the Wagner Free Institute of Science was founded, the new building was inaugurated and the first classes started four days later. Architect John MacArthur went on to be chosen as the primary architect for Philadelphia's magnificent City Hall a few years later. When he died in 1890, long before City Hall was completed, he was buried under a simple stone in the south section of Laurel Hill East. Like most architects of his day, an unremarkable stone. Wagner's museum came along at the height of museum mania in 19th century America. The continuous discovery of new and exotic fossils and new species was very popular with the public. The specimens were being gathered, sometimes honorably, sometimes nefariously, by a new group of scientists called paleontologists. The term paleontology came into use in 1822. It's from the Greek paleos, meaning old or ancient, on being logos, thought, or study. The simplest definition of paleontology is the study of ancient life. It sort of straddles biology and geology, but it's quite different from archaeology in that it excludes the study of anatomically modern humans. When Charles Darwin published On the Origin of Species in 1859, paleontology shifted focus to try and determine evolutionary paths. I am tempted to sidetrack here and talk about the notorious bone wars that reared up between Edward Drinker Cope and Othniel Marsh in the 1870s. But I'm going to save that for a future podcast about William Parker Folk the man who discovered the first dinosaur skeleton in the United States in 1858 in Haddonfield, New Jersey. Folk is interred at Laurel Hill East. The Wagner Free Institute became a magnet for people who wanted to learn and to teach. It welcomed men, women, and sometimes children from all social and economic classes and embraced people of all colors and religious beliefs. Wagner attempted to found an accredited polytechnic institute to create a home for a mechanics institute for the demonstration and announcement of new inventions and to form a partnership with the University of Pennsylvania for the scientific instruction of its undergraduates. The area around Wagner's estate had been countryside, but it was now filling with people and industry. Within a short walking distance were Eastern State Penitentiary, which had opened in 1829, Gerard College in 1833, St. Joseph's Hospital in 1849. When the city consolidated in 1854, these institutions all were part of the 20th Ward. 
And by the time that the Institute opened, it was accessible by the 15th Street streetcar line, which stopped at Columbia Avenue, now Cecil B. Moore. In 1870, 19% of the 20th Ward was foreign-born. Roughly 60% of children ages 5 through 18 were in school, and 90% of the adult population was literate. The ward had 6.2 inhabitants per dwelling. There were 5.4 members per family. It had not taken long for this former farmland to become part of the thriving city. Also by 1870, the Wagner had settled into its new home. Spring courses ran from March till June, fall courses from October to December. Evening lectures were offered Monday through Saturday from 8 to 9 p.m. Courses offered included paleontology, anatomy and physiology, botany, natural philosophy, and elocution. All of the courses could be supplemented by appropriate examples from the 23,000 specimens now to be found in the collection. The 22 October 1899 edition of the Philadelphia Times gives a typical lineup of classes offered. Notations in chemistry, winds, planetary, terrestrial, continental in general, the colonization of New England, gravitation, bricks, jellyfish, and the plant below ground. I have to wonder if Saturday Evening Post editor George Horace Lorimer might not have been referring to the Wagner Lectures when he said in his book, Letter from a Self-Made Merchant to His Son, you'll find that education's about the only thing lying around loose in the world, and then it's about the only thing a fellow can have as much of as he's willing to haul away. Everything else is screwed down tight, and the screwdriver's lost. I talked about Lorimer, who's buried at Laurel Hill East, in All Bones Considered Number 16 of the Saturday Evening Post. In the 19th century, local scientists like paleontologist Edward Drinker Cope, neurologist Charles Karsner Mills, endocrinology pioneer Charles Eucharist de Medici Sijou were frequent speakers. I talked about Wells and Sijou in prior podcasts. Big-name speakers in the 20th century included naturalist Gifford Pinchot, who spoke in 1913, now-controversial anthropologist and ethnologist Alice Herdlicka in 1919, educator John Dewey in 1932, anthropologist Margaret Mead in 1953. In the 21st century, They brought marine biologist Sylvia Earle in 2013, sociologist Michael Mann in 2017. These talks continue, and the list from all three centuries is quite impressive. The room that they lecture in has been preserved at the southern end of the building. It's down a long hallway from the front door. Beware, you are entering a different century. There are sloping rows of more than 200 fixed wood and iron seats that converge from three directions down to the central speaker's platform. The seats date from the late 19th century. They have wire racks under each chair, which gives you a place to store your hat when you come in, because everyone wore a hat back then. There's a large demonstrator's table in the front of the room with a large chalkboard behind it. 
Now, what will probably catch your eye when you first walk in the room is the massive Lanterna Magica, the magic lantern. This is a late 19th century gadget that can project various images, such as paintings, prints, or photographs on transparent plates. They're usually made of glass. If you're listening to this podcast within a few days of its release, you may still have time to get a free ticket for the 2023 Lantern Slideshow. It's scheduled for this Thursday, 19 October at 6 p.m. I'm certainly going to be there. If not, can't get a ticket, or if you have other plans, wait until next year. Although Wagner was knowledgeable, energetic, and generous with his wealth, he was an amateur in a field that was growing increasingly professional and exclusive, and which had already started to migrate from museums back to universities. Wagner himself was often difficult to work with. He had a prickly personality. He retained a strong independent spirit in a city and profession where collegiality was prized. William Wagner died after a prolonged illness in 1885 at age 89. He had requested that, like his mentor, Stephen Girard, his remains be interred in a crypt under his building. And after a funeral service at the Institute, his wish was granted. But later that year, his wife had him move to the river section at Laurel Hill West. He rests under a modest stone. He's not far from Anna Jarvis, the mother of Mother's Day, Horace Whitman, who ran the chocolate factory after his father, Stephen French Whitman, died. The online cemetery search site, Find a Grave, has him incorrectly listed as being in the Lansdowne section. He's not. He's in the river section. His estate was estimated to be about a million dollars, and that's more than $30 million in 2023 money. Ironically, it was Wagner's death that breathed new life into the Institute. The Institute formed a board of trustees, and they asked local scientists and prominent paleontologist Joseph Leidy to serve as a major consultant. Leidy was chair of anatomy at the University of Pennsylvania and director of the Academy of Natural Sciences. Leidy wasted no time in making the Wagner a more professional research and education institution. Under his guidance, the Institute started to publish a professional journal, Transactions of the Wagner Free Institute of Science. They are available online. It sponsored expeditions to gather original specimens for its collections. But the biggest difference that Leidy made was in organization. He took an imposing clutter of thousands of individual items which were poorly labeled in a manner that was known probably only to Wagner, and he doggedly developed a systematic display that showed the relationship of each organism to its closest relatives. In this way, he crudely but clearly demonstrated the basic principles of Charles Darwin's theory of evolution by means of natural selection. Many of the tiny descriptive cards now posted next to the specimens are the originals. They were created by Charles Willison Johnson, who worked under Leidy and became curator in 1888. Leidy also had a profound impact on the building itself. He added to the library. He completed the exterior work. 
So now when you enter the redesigned museum in 1891, you first encounter specimens of the simplest organisms, including coral sponges. As you proceed through the museum's glass top display cases, don't forget to look in the drawers for even more samples, you walk past hundreds of insects, birds, reptiles, and mammals, arranged according to evolutionary sequence, so that you finish next to the skeleton of a Homo sapiens. This order of succession has not changed in more than 130 years. With the help of Leidy, the Wagner Free Institute also increased the number and type of programs it offered to the public. In November 1890, it joined the University of Pennsylvania, Temple University, which had been founded in 1884, and other local institutions to form the Society for the Extension of University Teaching, which offered college-level courses and certifications to the working people of Philadelphia. When the spring course of lectures for 1897 was announced, it included chemistry on Monday evening, physiographical geology on Tuesday, history on Wednesday, electrostatics on Thursday, roads, railroads, and canals on Friday, and popular botany on Saturday. Leidy assisted in running the Institute for six short years before his death at age 67 in 1891. The online reference Find-A-Grave incorrectly has him interred in a mausoleum in the Ashland section of Laurel Hill West. Alas, he is not buried at Laurel Hill West. It's hard to believe that he accomplished as much as he did in such a short time. Many people consider Joseph Leidy the last man who knew everything. Today his statue greets you outside the Academy of Natural Science on the Benjamin Franklin Parkway. In 1886, Leidy's first year in charge, 2,416 attendees went to 20 lectures. By 1895, that number had jumped to 22,762 attendees at 105 lectures. The Wagner also played a significant role in the establishment of the free library system of Philadelphia. In 1731, Benjamin Franklin had founded the Library Company of Philadelphia. It was the first such library in the New World, but it was a subscription library. Borrowers had to be shareholders. In 1891, the Free Library of Philadelphia was chartered, quote, as a general library which shall be free to all, end quote, through efforts led by Dr. William Pepper provost of the University of Pennsylvania, who had secured initial funding through a $225,000 bequest from his wealthy uncle, George S. Pepper. Both Peppers are interred at Laurel Hill East. Samuel Wagner, a member of the Board of Trustees and nephew of William Wagner, joined with Pepper and three other Philadelphians to apply for the charter. Opposition from already established libraries postponed the start of the system. Meanwhile, the Board of Education announced that it would sponsor an alternative public library system and designated the Wagner Institute branch number one of the Philadelphia Public Library. It opened in October 1892 with the actuary of the Institute, Thomas Lynch Montgomery, also serving as librarian. 
Meanwhile, the original free library system was finally realized in 1894. So Philadelphia now had two separate public library systems. On 11 November 1895, they were consolidated through an ordinance passed by the city council. The Wagner Institute branch now became branch number one of the free library. Its expansion and the resultant heavy usage resulted in the construction of 1901 of a separate free library wing to the west. It was paid for and constructed by the institute to be used by the library. It further realized the continued commitment of the institute to the cause of free public education. Branch number one soon created children's education programs, a children's hour overseen by the library staff, with special lectures for school children on Tuesday afternoons. The free library occupied this wing of the Wagner until 1962, when the Columbia Avenue branch of the free library was opened. Wagner's endowment eventually started to run low, but the Institute was staunch about keeping its services free to whomever wanted them. The city was changing, but the museum was not. From 1905 to 1917, university extension lectures were offered that covered a wide range of topics. These lectures were a precursor to community colleges. The goal was to bring university to the people when the people could not come to the university and they were conducted in the evening so working people could attend. Their peak year at the Wagner was in 1906 when 24,087 students heard 122 lectures. That's an average attendance of 200 people per lecture, men and women, rich and poor, black and white. The museum did not even get electric lighting until 1926, 20 years after seeing this many students. It was also in the 1920s that the neighborhood began to transition from a wealthy one to a more middle-class and working neighborhood. But by World War II, many longtime residents had abandoned the region, which gave way to poorer neighborhoods, boarded-up buildings, diminished income from some row houses which had been deeded to the Institute by a 19th-century donor. By 1945, no Wagner students came from the neighborhood. By 1960, whites comprised less than 5% of the population around the museum, and the inner city atmosphere scared people away. Lecture attendance bottomed out in the 1960s, with an average 2,314 students per year over 81 lectures, a mere 29 students per lecture down from 200. In the 1960s, the Wagner Free Institute started to move its adult education courses off-site, eventually to more than 26 locations around the city, the Academy of Natural Sciences, American Philosophical Museum, the Pennsylvania Horticultural Society, and so on. The sessions that I recently signed up for will be for five Tuesday sessions at the Parkway Central Library. This five-week series of lectures is called Madness, A Brief History. I can't wait. If you go to the Wagner Free Institute now, you will see the neighborhood is changing back. For one thing, there's a police station across the street and down the block. 
I was there a few weeks ago. I watched as college students were moving into their apartments on Montgomery and 17th Streets. It was a five-minute walk to a nice ramen restaurant. There were pizza parlors and ice cream shops with lines out the door along Cecil B. Moore. The miracle is that the Museum of the Wagner Free Institute has not been altered in 130 years. There's this genuine Victorian museum in the heart of a major East Coast metropolis. I find it very easy to imagine Christopher Reeves and Jane Seymour in their Edwardian costumes of somewhere in time, wandering around the cases, sharing secret glances and whispers as they marvel at what nature hath wrought. I am delighted to note that despite the Wagner Institute's relative obscurity, it still saw 22,000 visitors in 2022. They came from 45 states and 18 different countries. Do yourself a favor. Make a visit to the Wagner Free Institute of Science. You might even find yourself taking a class like I did. And best of all, the Wagner Free Institute of Science continues the mission that it set out to accomplish more than 160 years ago. Free education to anyone who wants it. It is the oldest such program in the United States, and it shows no sign of slowing down. episode of All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories number 56. It's still in the planning. It's called Philadelphia and Oil, and I plan to have an emphasis on the recently closed Port Breeze refinery across the Schuylkill River from the airport. You'll hear about the discovery of oil in Pennsylvania. What actually happens at an oil refinery? Oil magnate Joseph Newton Pugh and his sons, who were essentially the Koch brothers of the mid-20th century, the Sun Oil Refinery and Shipyard in Marcus Hook, Philadelphia's role in the history of Standard Oil and other tidbits. I'm still kind of gathering things together for that one. In Biographical Bites from Bala, Laurel Hill West Stories, episode number 26 from mid-November, I will tell you about a legendary surgeon from Penn. Isidore Ravden served in the military during World War II, and he achieved the rank of Major General. In the 1950s, when President Dwight D. Eisenhower started having abdominal pains and other symptoms, it was Ravden who was summoned to Walter Reed Hospital to provide care for the President. 
and remind you there are self-guided tours available from both cemeteries. For Laurel Hill East, download the app. For Laurel Hill West, you can find it with your podcast. It's a walkthrough from the Kinwood Trail entrance to the Pencoid exit and another in the opposite direction. If you do the round trip, it's about two hours of stopping at Stones, peeping in mausoleums, and hearing about nearly a hundred people who helped make Philadelphia what it is today. And there is an update which I have not made yet. Uh, you probably know that Constance Clayton died within the last few weeks and is buried in her plot at Laurel Hill West. I talk about that plot on the audio tour, but I mention that she is not there yet. All Bones Considered and Biographical Bites from Bala are mostly researched, written, narrated, and produced by me, Joe Lex, retired professor of emergency medicine from Temple University, volunteer tour guide, and volunteer podcaster for both cemeteries. Reach me through my email, joe at joelex.net. Our theme song, Names at Peace, is by local artist James Harrow. Maybe I'll see you on a tour. Stay safe, stay well. Stay tuned if you want to hear the bibliography. I found all of these online. First was some of the work of the Wagner Free Institute of Science in Philadelphia. It was by Joseph Wilcox. That's from the Proceedings of the American Philosophical Society, Volume 32, Number 143, January 1894, pages 245 to 247. Then there's the National Register of Historic Places registration form for a National Historic Landmark designation. That was done by the people at the Wagner in 1989. And yes, they did get their designation as a National Historic Landmark. Behind the Gates, the Wagner Free Institute of Science and its Neighborhood, 1865 to today. That was by Elizabeth C. Doi, D-O-I. That was her anthropology senior thesis for the University of Pennsylvania, which she submitted in 2013. Science for All, the Wagner Free Institute of Science in Philadelphia by Matthew A. White. That's from Pennsylvania Legacies, Volume 15, Number 1, Spring 2015, pages 12 through 17. And finally, I cannot thank enough Lynn Dorwald, personal communications with Lynn Dorwald, who is Special Collections Librarian at the Wagner Free Institute of Science. I sent her early drafts of the script, and she made suggestions and even a few corrections to my original script. Thanks for listening. Maybe I'll see you around the cemetery. Stay safe. Stay well.